Good evening, church family. I'm so glad you've uh, tuned in with us on this Wednesday evening as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this series so far. I just continue to thank God for His providence in, in knowing beforehand that this was something we were going to examine even before we found out we weren't going to be able to celebrate uh, Easter together in the way we're used to. And so I'm, I'm thanking God and I'm praising God for the opportunity to study the beauty of the resurrection in depth in a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've already been blessed. Um, last week was such a tremendous message from Pastor Justin, so I'm so thankful for him and his gifts as he uh, took us through the gospel in verses 3 through 5. But tonight, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me uh, to obviously 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we are going to examine verses 5 through 7 tonight. Uh, but we're going to read through, just to get a little bit of a context, uh, verses 1 through 8. And so if you have your Bibles, you should have um, a media guide with some notes to it uh, with you as well. That's available on our website. We want you to be able to follow along. Uh, but we do also want you to have your Bibles out. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read uh, beginning at verse 1 and all the way to verse 8. Join me in reading God's precious word together. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which you also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Church family, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that... Even though this is recorded and this is online, that we still are able to worship you through your word together. Lord, we pray that you'd open our ears to hear your word and our eyes to see you. Lord, that you would continue to do what you promised to do, and that is make your children more like you uh, through the preaching and teaching and the means of your word. Give us grace to do that uh, very thing tonight as we seek your face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, I met Amy Page, who was at that time Amy Wilkes, about seven years ago in 2013. I remember everything about that night. We went to a place called Minglewood Hall in Memphis, Tennessee, at one of my former roommate's concerts. I remember the first time I saw her. I remember our conversation. She has always been and continues to be uh, quite a looker. Uh, so I remember every single detail, though I'll spare you the details uh, of that story and of that night. But I remember everything, even though it was seven years ago. Uh, on another note, a couple weeks before the pandemic, I had an appointment at the dentist office. And I, uh, every time I go, they'd ask me if I'd ever had any damage to my teeth. And I remember uh, almost two decades ago, when I was about 13 years old, uh, this one very particular story. I had my uh, dear friend, still dear friend, Kyle Allen, uh, over at my house. And 
we were playing outside, and I made the brilliant, bright decision to throw an inflated basketball up in the air and swing with all my might at that basketball with an aluminum bat. And what happened, I don't know if you know how physics work, I certainly didn't at the time, is that bat came back off of that basketball and hit me right in the mouth, uh, it immediately killing one of my front tooth and one of whatever you call these chomper things on this side. Uh, and I remember just vividly everything that happened after that. I remember uh, all the, the grotesque things. I remember having a day I thought I was going to hang out with my buddy. They spent emergency at the dentist office. I remember my mother telling me that all my teeth were going to turn black and I might lose them all. She's always been very good under pressure situations. But I can tell you uh, so many vivid details about that particular event, even though it happened just about 20 years ago uh, from now. So most of you know that you can remember fairly well significant details that took place 20 or more years ago. Some of you can even remember Um, events that took place 30 or more years ago or 40 or more years ago. And I know if you're a student listening to this, you may think that 20 years is a long span of time, but it it really isn't. Um, It's not that long. Now imagine meeting someone you knew had died. Imagine meeting someone whose funeral you had attended, who you had had seen be put into a grave and dirt covered on them, that you watched, um, and now that person is standing before you, risen from the dead, despite you seeing them die. Do Do you think you would remember that? Do you think that would be a memory you'd hold on to? Do you think you'd even be able to recall that 20 years later? You most certainly would. It's a memorable event, and that is exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians in our passage today. He writes in no uncertain terms that Jesus was seen after his dying, his being buried, and his resurrection from the dead. And he appeared to a whole lot of people. Not only that, but this took place just about 20 years or so prior from Paul writing this letter. And so the big idea for our text is Paul is telling the Corinthians that Jesus had been raised in bodily form and that he appeared to a whole lot of people. A simpler way to say it really is what Paul is saying here is Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, body and all. The same Jesus who died for our sins, who was buried, and this Jesus who was raised from the dead, he appeared and was seen. He walked and talked with his disciples. He commanded them to touch him. He ate and drank with them. He didn't just appear to them in a dream, but he appeared in broad daylight. He he didn't just appear for a moment, but he hung out with them, spent time with them. He cooked breakfast for them. He taught them from the Hebrew Bible. He taught them from the Old Testament. Over 500 witnesses could testify to this truth. So the Corinthians could be sure that Jesus is alive because of the testimony of those who had seen the risen Lord. Now, before we dive into our text this evening, I want to give a couple of prefatory statements. Uh, First, even though we've mentioned it for the past two weeks, we have to remember that Paul, in this passage, he is preparing to address the false and destructive denial of the resurrection from the dead. It's really what this chapter is all about. 
He's preparing to address the false and destructive denial of the resurrection from the dead. He is reminding the Corinthians that the gospel that they professed faith in was faith in the resurrection of Christ. This was part of the gospel that he preached to them. This is what we saw last week. It's our memory verse for this month. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So when Paul explains the appearances of Jesus, this is going to be the raw material that he uses to make his argument in the coming verses, verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians. That Christ was raised on the third day and appeared to many. This will be his primary premise in his argument that we too will be resurrected from the dead. So that's a larger context I want to keep before you in a uh, prefatory remark. The second thing that needs to be said before we dive into the text is this. This is not a sermon that lends itself out to a nice, pretty three-point sermon. It's not that type of sermon. Uh, when, we're, we're, when I was looking at this text at the breakdown before we even started this series and kind of um, dividing between which sermons we'd preach, I had a couple options when it came to this particular text. I could make this one point in a sermon of many more verses uh, of a larger point, of a larger text in a more polished sermon, or I could keep this as just a small chunk and really squeeze the juice out of it. And friends, that's what we're going to do. We're going to unearth everything we can out of these two and a half verses. Because I believe it's sections like this that we are so prone or tempted to read over very quickly and gain little from. Uh, In our personal study, we might read a passage like this and think, well, Jesus appeared to a bunch of people. Great. That's good. But what does it have to do with me? And then we move on. Instead, I want us to explore the depth of these two and a half verses together, and I want us to learn how to ask really good questions within the text. I want us to broaden our understanding of what it means to apply the text in our lives, to see the interdependence between theology, history, and our lives. One last final um, preparatory remark. That is, Easter will be here on Sunday. And praise God, as we have seen how appropriate and providential that we will be studying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in great detail through the next several weeks. But right through Easter, I really want to encourage us to meditate on these truths as we prepare to celebrate the preeminent Christian holiday. Let us prepare to celebrate the most significant event in human history, bar none, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Okay, we've had all the preparatory remarks. Let's dive right into the text itself. 1 Corinthians 15, specifically looking at 5 through 7. In fact, let's just read verses 5 through 7 again to highlight our text. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. 
Now, as mentioned, I believe the, the big idea of this passage is that Jesus is alive, body and all. Paul is going to drive this point to the Corinthians by emphasizing the various witness to this wondrous event. So the way we're going to tackle this passage is, is two ways. We're going to look at the facts, what we're going to call the what, and then we're going to look at the application, what we're going to call the so what. Obviously, we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at the facts and then a little bit of time at the end looking at the application from this text. Uh, but I want to start with the facts, the truth, the what of the passage. The facts, first things first, we know Jesus appeared. That's the first fact we see, first of the what. Jesus appeared. Paul is clearly stating this as a fact. It's undoubtable that these appearances were in flesh and blood. His body was resurrected. He didn't appear uh, in spirit, nor was it a vision. He, he was there with them, body and all. He was resurrected from the dead. In addition, it's important to note that these appearances took place around 20 years before this letter to the Corinthians uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. I want to make this clear. Jesus was crucified. Really, there's, there's two dates that many people debate, either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., with 33 A.D. being the most likely. Well, this book that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, this book was written in the spring of either 53, 54, or 55 A.D., somewhere in around that point. So if we take the earliest available date of the crucifixion, A.D. 30, and the latest available date of this letter to Corinth being written in A.D. 55, that is at most 25 years between the resurrection of Jesus and this particular event. But more likely, it's actually probably about 20. As we've seen, there's no doubt that this would still be something that's fresh in their minds. Okay, that's the first fact. We know he treats it as a fact because it is a fact. Jesus appeared. Then Paul writes, Jesus appeared specifically. And he starts by saying that Jesus appeared to Cephas. He appeared specifically to Cephas. Paul most always uses Cephas, uh, by the way, for his friend Peter. Uh, Cephas or Peter is the name that Jesus himself gave to, to Simon. He was one of the 12 disciples who were one of the three in the inner circle uh, of Jesus on his earthly ministry. He was often pulled aside to experience something uh, extra special with Christ. Um, Peter is the English of the Greek, and Cephas is our English version of the Aramaic of Peter. This appearance from Jesus to Peter likely is what took place on Luke, in Luke 24, 33 through 34. Remember, the Lord has appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, we have that. We know that on the day of his resurrection, he appeared to Mary Magdalene in John 20, as we'll look at this, uh, this Sunday. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but Jesus meets them, and, and they hurried back to tell the others. And look at what it says. It says, So they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon. And so that text, along with 1 Corinthians 15, it's the only other place we get this recorded appearance to Peter. We don't know much about it, but we know that Jesus appeared to Peter here, or Cephas, or Simon, or whatever you want to call him. Uh, two things I want to note about this appearance. Obviously, this is one of the first appearances of Christ. Uh, this is one of Christ's first appearances. 
Jesus meets, we know, the disciples on the road to Emmaus the very day he rose from the dead. He tells them that he has appeared to Simon and they deliver that message. Remember this. Peter held a very prominent position in the early church, even among the twelve. And the reason I feel like I need to say that is because I think often we have a tendency because of our anti-popish sentiment to want to minimize the apostle Peter as much as possible. But the reality is, is that Peter played a very prominent role and was a leader even among the twelve. The second note I want to point out about Jesus' appearances to Peter is remember our last event where we left Peter before Christ's resurrection. One of Peter's last encounters or his last encounter with Christ was the denial of Christ on the day of his crucifixion. His abandonment of Christ, even in his hour of need. Even after Peter had made several statements declaring, I will never do this. I will never deny you. I will uh, die for you even if I have to. I will never lose faith in you. Yet, what do we see? He did. Uh, And Peter was broken over that. Uh, He wept and wept over that. How gracious is it of our Lord that one of the first appearances he makes is to the apostle Peter and to restore him. Let's move on now. We've seen uh, the what. We've seen that Jesus appeared and that he appeared to Cephas. Next, we see that Jesus appeared to the twelve, as Paul says. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Paul only uses this term, the twelve, here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's more than just a number. It's an office. It's a designation of those who were selected by Christ to be the representatives of the new Israel, the the church. Just as there were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, there are now 12 apostles whom Christ had selected for his church. They had a unique role with unique authority. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that all 12 were there when Christ appeared to them. We know Judas Iscariot was not present and did not see the resurrected Lord because at this point in time, he had already hung himself. Nor, if this is the appearance that happened on the day of Easter, would Thomas be present. He wasn't there at the first appearance. So why is Paul using this term 12? Well, Paul can still use this term 12 in the same way we may use a term like the Jaguars as a representative, right? If we said the Jaguars were volunteering to hand out food at a food bank, it doesn't mean that every Jaguars player is there, yet the ones that are there are representative of the whole. I believe Paul is using this term 12 in this particular way. So where do we see this appearance to the 12? Well, I think it's recorded also in Luke 24 in verses 36 through 43. This is most likely this appearance where Luke writes these words. He says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you here anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before him. Notice the link that Jesus goes to assure them that he's not raised as a spirit, but he is flesh and blood standing before them. So that's the appearance that we see to the twelve. 
Okay, we've got three more, and, and these appearances are actually only recorded in this particular place, 1 Corinthians 15, in all of the Bible. They're only found here. But we can learn something from there, right? By this, we're reminded that the New Testament does not record all the events that take place during Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, or his subsequent ministry or ascension. It is sufficient. Of course, the Bible is absolutely sufficient, but remember, it's not exhaustive. Remember, John commented at the end of his gospel, if we were to list everything that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus, there would not be enough books to fill all that took place. Well, along these same lines, we should recognize that the events that are recorded for us in the scriptures were selected out of a massive amount of events that took place in this time. So each one of them should be considered very carefully. We realize that these are communicating something to us that is significant. It is not arbitrary or casual in any way, shape, or form. So the first of these last three that Paul mentions, he mentions in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15. Read that again with me, if you will. After that, Paul says, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. This is obviously significant in the sheer amount of people who saw the resurrected Lord. If it's not good enough for you that Jesus appeared to Peter, and if it's not good enough for you that he appeared to the 12, then it ought to be good enough to know that he appeared to over 500 hundred brothers at one time, or brethren. Uh, most likely, this, by the way, wasn't just an appearance where he popped in the room and said, ta-da, and then just vanished out, and everyone was like, what, did you see that? I think that was Jesus. No, he actually stayed a while. He hung out for a bit. He lingered with more than 500 brethren who saw him up close and personal. With no doubt, these people resurrected, or saw a bodily resurrection. By the way, this word brethren likes to, to lend itself to think that there was likely women involved in this as well. The Greek uh, word that's translated brethren is, uh, can also be translated to be used as brothers and sisters. It's kind of like the Spanish term in that way. When men or, or, and women are present, the masculine term is used. But if it's just women, you use the feminine. If it's men and women, you use the masculine. That's what happened here. Not only that, but notice what Paul says about these people. He says that most of them are still alive. What great confidence Paul has in his testimony. He says, listen, most of these guys are even still alive. Go ask them. Most of these guys were even likely available to the Corinthians. They may have been even with Paul in this town. Remember, there was a great persecution that arose at the early church, and, and yet some like James and some others stayed in Jerusalem, but many were dispersed among uh, in the Greek cities at that time. And so uh, many of those Jews fled, and they could be uh, around this town of Corinth. So uh, Paul invites the Corinthians to go after these, inquire about them. Christ has risen. There is a resurrection. And yet, notice with what precision uh, Paul gives our, uh, his testimony. He's not exaggerating here, right? Because he even says, look, I, I'll, I'll be honest, some of them are, have fallen asleep. Right? Some of them are, are not alive. But many of them are, quite a few of them. Go, ask them. He attempts to be very accurate, and I love that about him. Okay, we've got two more appearances here. The next one is the, the second name on our list, and this is he then appeared to James. We have Cephas and James as the only 
really two names on this list. But there are actually, did you know, five different Jameses that are recorded in the New Testament. Uh, we can rule out three of them almost immediately. For instance, James, the father of Judas. Uh, most likely, Paul's not referring to him here. There's only uh, one instance or, or record, record of him. Uh, you know that there was two Judases and disciples of, of the 12 disciples. One, Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. And then another uh, Judas, who we only know as the son of James, who was faithful but doesn't get a whole lot of recognition. We can cross that name off right off the list. Nor is it likely James, the son of Alphaeus, who was actually one of the twelve, not mentioned often. And uh, it's unlikely that Paul's referring to him because he's already referred to the twelve. Then we have James the Less, the third James, James the Younger, or James the Less. He's only ever mentioned in conjunction with his mother, Mary of Clopas, who is the mother of James. She was the one that was actually there with uh, Jesus' mother Mary at his crucifixion and also came to the tomb with Mary Magdalene at uh, the day of his resurrection. A lot of James and a lot of Marys going around uh, in these days. And that leaves us with two options. It's either James the son of Zebedee or James the half-brother of Jesus. James the son of Zebedee we know is one of the sons of thunder, right? He was one of the 12 apostles and he was one of those in Jesus' inner three who had a special relationship with him. Like Peter and, and James's brother, John, who Jesus would often take along with a unique relationship he had. And they got to see and experience special things. But Paul is not referring to that James here. Not James, the son of thunder, the son of Zebedee. We can be confident of that because, A, one of the, he's one of the twelve, which was already mentioned. And furthermore, James, the son of Zebedee, was the first martyr that we, well, one of the first martyrs, not the first martyr that we know of. He was martyred by Herod Agrippa I, around 42 to 44 AD. He was the first disciple martyred almost 10 years before the writing of this letter. So given the context, it's just very unlikely that Paul would have used him as a witness to the risen Lord. So that leaves us with one, James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was the oldest of the four youngest brothers of, or younger brothers of Jesus, He's first mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, where Jesus had returned to Nazareth and, remember, was rejected by those in his hometown. Matthew writes for us these words. He says, um, where did this man, this is their response to him, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? This is the James Paul is referring to in this list of appearances. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Well, it's supported by the fact that Paul likewise mentions James in this way in Galatians chapter 1, 18 through 19, along with Cephas. Uh, furthermore, just as Peter is mentioned for his prominence in the early church, James had a whole lot of prominence in the early church. He emerges as a leader and actually, uh, I believe, pastors the church of Jerusalem for many years. Paul refers to James, Cephas, and John as pillars of the church in Galatia, to his letter to the Galatians. These were people that were invested with authority and influence, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, is included in that. So that supports the idea that he's referring to James, Jesus' brother. Lastly, the other reason is that Paul had already mentioned the Lord's brothers in 1 Corinthians 9.5, mentioning the Lord's brothers also take wives. So they were obviously known to the Corinthians. For all these reasons, I believe it's clear that Paul was referring to James here. 
But why does this matter? What, what's the importance of which James this is? Well, I want you to think about the implications if this is, which we believe it is, and I, I believe there's evidence and arguments to say that it is uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Think about what's fascinating. James was not always a disciple or apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, remember, James did not initially believe Jesus during his earthly ministry. James and his brothers were present in John 2, 12, where Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, but they clearly didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. In fact, in John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, look what John writes about them. It says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your work which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. What do we make of this, though? James and his brothers, don't miss the significance of this. They slept near Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They worked alongside Jesus. They had a whole lot of conversations with Jesus, and yet they were incredulous about the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. I think we, we have to realize and give much credence to the fact that Jesus had a very ordinary childhood. Unlike the many false gospels and the stories we hear that exist that claim that Jesus did many miracles as a young child, it wasn't obvious, even from his childhood, that he was who he said he was. The gospels record nothing besides the birth narrative of Jesus and that one story we know when he was 12 years old and he stayed behind in the temple because he must be in his father's house. Beyond that, there is zero zip record of Jesus as a young boy and a young child. And I think it's safe and likely to presume that Jesus lived a very ordinary childhood. See, we have a tendency to focus only on the divinity and to think of him only in that way. And, and yes, he is the God-man for sure. But remember, he set aside his divine prerogative. He lived out of his humanity, which means he got sick, he ate, he went to the bathroom, he had a normal childhood, he grew and matured. There was no reason to believe that James believed in Jesus before Jesus' resurrection appearance to his half-brother. And yet, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the power of this conversion. James, the brother of Jesus, goes from being leading skeptic to the leader of the Jerusalem church, testifying, yes, my older brother actually is the Christ, the Son of God. To the point of even being martyred in, for that confession and that belief. Christ is who he claimed to be, and he appeared to James. Finally, we have our last appearance that's listed here, and it says that Jesus appeared then to all the apostles. Well, who is this in reference to? Well, really, I think there's three ways we could think about this real quickly. It could either be the apostles that are including the 12, but also a much larger group of the 12. For instance, the 12, James, Paul, and others who have been commissioned specifically to proclaim the gospel, to found churches, and who were called specifically, met the requirements of the office of apostle that we see in the scriptures. Secondly, it could be just another reference to the 12, sort of a second commissioning, a reminding of another appearance, or it could just be another group altogether, an unmentioned one. I think the first is most likely. I think all the apostles would include the 12, but also a much larger group 
of people than just the 12. Now, I'm not going to speak much on that because Paul is, in the next verses, going to give his defense uh, for being an apostle and really talk about that a little bit more. So we'll save that for another day. But that's the what. Those are the facts, that Jesus appeared uh, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12 and to James and to 500 brethren at, at one time and to all the apostles. Now, the so what. This is much briefer than the what, by the way. So what? Well, we can say it like this. The so what is simply, according to Paul, that Christ is risen. Christ is alive. That's the so what. But I want to I say a couple of things about that, even how we just approach application. See, we often look for the application in thinking, how do we apply this text? And when we say that, what we mean is, what does this have to do with me? How does this tell me something I need to do? How is this going to impact my relationship where in some way I can be different? But remember, application isn't always so much about changing what you do as it is changing the way you think. Sometimes the point of a text can be applied rightly to right thinking about something. Now, what's interesting about that is when we have a right thinking, oftentimes it affects the way we feel or act, and it should. But the primary point of this text is a right thinking. It's to know the certainty that Christ is reigning and he is living bodily, physically. Even now at the right hand of the Father where he has all power and authority, praise God. And so how do we think about this section in a right way? What are some things we can use to think about the section in the right way? Well, just a couple things really quick. One, this happened. The right thinking about that is this, this is true, that it actually happened. And you know, I wish I could just assume that we all knew that, but you just can't assume it anymore. You can't assume that because someone says that they're a Christian, that they realize that this really happened in time and space. In general, too often, it's okay now just to trust in Jesus, and it doesn't really matter what you think or believe really happened or didn't, as long as you trust in Jesus. No, friend, It matters. It matters that we realize that this happened because if it didn't, we are in big trouble. We are not saved. We are still in our sin and we are still separated from God. And that is a huge problem. So not only do we need to have a right thinking to know that this happened, but secondly, we need to see the importance of the resurrection. We often focus on the cross and and look rightly so But we also must remember that without the resurrection, the cross didn't work. Without the resurrection, the cross cross is actually a failure. Uh, It's interesting to know that that Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not enough to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You have to believe on the work of of the cross is is going to be efficacious for you because it was efficacious for Christ who was raised from the dead, who was validated. The Lord accepted the sacrifice. The resurrection is important because without the resurrection, the cross didn't work. It was a failure. And finally, if I could just put it in one word, what this, this text should bring to us and what should we rightly think about this text is it should bring us confidence. In a word, confidence. How do we apply this? Confidence. This is our king. This is whom we worship. 
This is who we're here to celebrate. It's why we exist to celebrate this Christ who is alive even now, who is distributing gifts even now through his Holy Spirit to people in his church, that his church might grow, they might thrive, they may fellowship, and that others might be brought into our midst. This is our king. It's why we celebrate and have great confidence. Not only that, Christ is alive, but the fact that he is alive means that everything he taught is true. Did you, did you know that the resurrection even validates the scriptures? Without the resurrection, there's no way to know if any of this is actually true. But with a risen Christ, we know that everything in this word is true because it comes from a living God. It's a living word through a living Christ. We can have confidence in that. And that can be applied in so many ways in so many things. In fact, that's my encouragement to you this week. Apply that in this way. Have a right thinking about the resurrection as we lead into this season of Easter, that we would know without a doubt these are, these are facts, that this happened. Not only that, but it's, it's vital that this happened because our salvation hinges on the fact of God vindicating his son's work. And that thirdly, we would have such great confidence that because of the resurrection, because Jesus is alive and we can know that he's alive, that everything he says about us and the promises he gives to his children uh, can be trusted. Praise God for his marvelous grace and his work in the resurrection. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Gracious Father, we do thank you, Lord, that this is good news. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day and he appeared to many that we might have confidence that he accomplished all that he came to accomplish on our behalf. His perfect life was acceptable, that it was pleasing to you, Father, that his obedience even to dying on a cross was the very thing that you desired, that your wrath indeed, Lord, was satisfied, that you raised him from the dead to confirm that truth. Our Lord has risen. Christ is alive. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even now you can hear our prayers and you are interceding on our behalf. We know that your prayer is efficacious for us, that it accomplishes all that it intends to accomplish. We have no fear in this life, nor any fear in death, because you've conquered death on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Give us that confidence. Impress this truth upon our hearts that we might live as those who know with certainty that our King is alive, not as those who wonder or doubt. Father God, be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, church. Be encouraged. We look forward to seeing you Sunday. God bless you.